Take your Bibles and let's find Acts chapter 17. We're going to camp out there for the day. Uh, to Ben and your family, I know third John rings true. I have no greater joy than to know my children walk with the Lord. And Katrin, we are so honored to get to partner with you in the work you do. And if you would today, give my, really my family. We got Wilbur and Teresa Yoder here with us today. We have done life and ministry with these folks for 20 years. We've built churches. We've raised kids together. Um, I'm not sure what year they got the tax deduction of my kids and I got the tax deduction of theirs. But um, it was funny. I preached a message here a couple weeks ago about having refrigerator rights. And I introduced them to someone today, and the guy said, do these have refrigerator rights? Uh, they own the refrigerator. So good to have you all with us today. They've come from Millersburg to be with Sue and I, and um, there's nothing better than just lifelong friends, isn't there? And I hope you are developing that here at this church. Great connection. Getting to know each other. I don't know how many ladies we had here yesterday, but it was a parking lot full. That's the only way I can describe it. But Miss Jonna, thank you for your leadership in our ladies' ministry. What a gift you are to our church. And I know she, she had a lot of people helping her. So, uh, and I understand that um, it's just a good place to be, isn't it? This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Well, some of you have been asking me, what, what are we doing? What are we studying next? And to give you a little bit of a roadmap, we're going to be today and the next two Sundays on a series of generosity. And don't check out on me, all right? Oftentimes you hear a preacher talk about generosity and you go, oh, it's only going to be about money. Don't check out on us. That's not what all this is about uh, necessarily. But uh, <laughs> uh, we'll be there for three weeks, and then I'm going to do a two-week series on worship, on who we worship and why we worship. And hard to believe after that, that takes us to a four-week series out of Matthew chapter 1 and 2 on the Christmas story, right up to the end of the year. And then we will jump back into a book study, a verse-by-verse -verse study in January. All right, so now you know where we're going. And I'm looking at the clock, and I have a long way to go and a short time to get there. So here we go. Let's, uh, let's study together this morning. I do believe this statement is true, that a genuine faith in Christ, a genuine faith in Christ will result in a genuine generosity in us. I've said for years, I think I should have a t-shirt made that says, when you get Jesus right, you will get everything else right. Now understand this. If you have a genuine, authentic faith in Christ, how many of you would say you have that this morning? You have a genuine faith in Christ, then you will also have a genuine generosity that bubbles up within you. Because God's generosity to us and in us will automatically cause us to have a generosity that overflows out of our life. I believe this, that Christ followers you and I that proclaim the name of Christ. Uh, we should be givers more than takers. Does that make sense? 
We should give more than we take. We should be investors in eternal things rather than consumers of temporal things. Think about that. We should spend more of our time and effort in that which is eternal rather than the materialism of temporals. And lastly, I think we should be managers, not owners, and that's a big leap for many of us. We're going to talk about that in week three of this series. But how we go to being a manager of the resources that God has given us rather than thinking that we are the owners of it. Now, as I've always said, already said to you, anytime a preacher stands up and goes, we're going to talk about generosity, a couple things that people do. You put your hands in your pocket near your money clip. You grab your purse and hold it a little bit tighter because you're, you're afraid you know what's coming, don't you? And preachers get a bad rap that all we talk about is money. And um, I can tell you out of history of my life and ministry, that's not all I talk about. But I want you to understand this. If you look at the New Testament, at the teachings of Christ, a third of everything Jesus had to say was about money. Now, this series isn't about money, but it is about our heart. It is about what we value. It is about what we hold on to. Our series these next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about time. We're going to talk about words. We're going to talk about deeds. We're going to talk about our talents. We're going to talk about the actions that you and I display in giving back to the Lord. And all of that counts. You understand that. Jesus said, as much as you do it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. So I want to help us move the needle just a little bit in all of our lives where we become better investors of the resources of God for the kingdom of God. So today, we talk about the generosity of God. And the idea behind it is that God owns everything and God provides everything. Pretty simple truth, isn't it? God owns it all and he provides it all. Next week, we're going to talk about the big idea that we own nothing, but we need everything. And the last week, we'll talk about managers, not owners. So how many of you would agree with me this morning that God owns everything? I got a witness in the house? Yes. Y'all are, Brian, we're, we're going to have to get to ameners and clappers, all right? Do you agree that God owns everything? Yes. I like that. Second question. Harder. Do you live that way? Right? Oh, I agree that God owns everything. But don't meddle in my world. Right? We don't always act like, we don't always live like, we don't always approach our time, our talent, our treasure as if it all belongs to God. And I can't tell you how many times I see people who are tight-fisted and who are reluctant and are stingy and unwilling to share with people who are in need. This is one reason why we're so excited about our Christmas in my neighborhood outreach this, this Christmas season that you're going to get to give collectively to something that then we can disperse out to 150 families. Because we believe this, small things done with great love can change the world. Do you know how encouraging it'll be 
for someone to get a little bit of assistance at Christmas time and that you get to pray with them when you give it to them and that you're going to get to share the gospel with them and hopefully people will be saved and lives will be changed and families will be encouraged. Does that not sound just wonderful? That's generosity. And at the heart, at the heart of generosity, it's not a money issue. It's a heart issue. The Bible says out of the heart, man speaks. So I think generosity, as we start this series, generosity starts with a theological understanding of who God is, what is his nature, and what is it that he's given us. And that's some of what I want to unpack in this series. Here's the big idea for the series, and it's on your handout. It'll be on the screens beside me. The big idea of this whole series is understanding God's faithful generosity to us activates a faith-filled generosity from us. Now just ponder that for a moment. Let that settle in for a second. When you and I begin to understand God's faithful generosity, and is he not faithful? And is he generous? Sure he is. When we start to understand that of his character and of his nature, that that's what he has done to us and for us, it will activate, it will stir up within you and I a faith-filled generosity that goes out from us so that what God pours into us flows out around us. That's the goal. That's where we want to go. So I hope you'll stick with us. We're going to look today at Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 22 through 28, give you a little bit of setup for this passage. Acts is a sequel to the uh, book of, of Luke. This is part two of this great historical document. Acts is telling us the movement of God as it relates to the local church after the resurrection of Christ. When you start to look in the passage, you'll see that we find Paul this time in verse 22. He's in Athens. We believe this to be somewhere around A.D. 49. And Athens is this cultural epicenter of all of Greece. It's an amazing city. There's all kinds of things happening in this. Matter of fact, it does, it's not only the cultural epicenter, but it was really known as the religious Mecca of the day. Every known deity of every known belief was being worshipped in the city of Athens. Now, I want you to think about that. Every belief system and every idol and every false god was established somewhere through altars, through temples, through buildings, through idols. Every one of them was established somewhere in the city of Athens. The people of Athens that Paul's getting ready to speak to, they, they tended to fall in one of two camps. And I know these are somewhat big words, but they will help you. One are polytheistic. And polytheistic people just believe that there are many gods. That there's not just one God, what you and I believe. We're monotheistic, right? Only one God. The people of Athens believed there were many gods. Therefore, they had many idols, many places of worship. Then there were also what we would call pantheistic, which believed that there's not just many gods, but that God is in everything. 
So we're going to worship him in the flowers and in the trees and in the clay pots and God's everywhere. Anything that we want to become our God could become our God if you're pantheistic. So this is the, the group of people that Paul's getting ready to address here in this chapter. And Paul's walking around the city. Can't you imagine the Apostle Paul walking around Athens with all of these false deities and idols established and everybody worshiping and, and everyone just walking in darkness? And Paul's walking around and I can just hear him going, that's not right and that's not right and you're doing that. Nope, nope, nope. And he's really concerned about their lostness. He's concerned about their religious confusion. And let me just pause for a second. When's the last time you and I really got concerned as we walk through our neighbors and our communities about the lostness and the religious confusion of people? Can I get on a soapbox for just a minute? Someone tell me yes. Thank you. I was going to anyway. I probably will upset one or two of you in here, but that's all right. You can send all mail to um, uh, Randy. I'll pick on Randy today. Okay. There's a bumper sticker out there. All it reads is coexist. Anybody seen this bumper sticker? And it's spelled out with the symbols of religions around the world. That bumper sticker is as wrong as wrong can be. And God does not coexist. He is above all. He is like none other. He is the creator of all. And there's none to be worshipped except for him. And I can imagine Paul running around the city of Athens and seeing all these little coexist bumper stickers showing up everywhere. And he going back behind him and pulling them off the bumpers of the car. Paul's a great theologian. He's a great philosopher. He's a brilliant mind. And he's known now for preaching the gospel. He's known for telling people about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. He's known about proclaiming the love of God. And these philosophers in Athens know that Paul's in town and they go, I can just hear it. There's cynicism in their voice. They go, hey, Paul, why don't you come over to the arena and we'll let you talk for a little bit. Now, the arena is about a 500-seat arena that's now filled with philosophers as Paul begins to speak and to teach. And we can just kind of drop in today on his conversation. It's in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus. I can never get this right. Are Thank you. I went to school. I could do that. And Paul said to Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship. I even found an altar which was inscribed to an unknown God. Now, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, 
and he does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed time and the boundaries of where they are to live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of you. For in him we live and move and have our being, says the word of God. Can we unpack this for just a few moments? Paul in verses 22 and 23 of this chapter is affirming to them. I know you're very religious people. I know that there are temples and there are altars and there are buildings and there are statutes. And he, he is just recognizing where they are. Notice he doesn't come in and tell them how wrong they are. He doesn't come in and condemn them. He doesn't preach a turn or burn message. Okay? He just kind of steps into their world and he goes, I can see around you that you all must be very religious people. And then he pauses and goes, and I even came across this little altar and statue that says, to the unknown God. And I can just hear Paul going, you don't know who he is, but I do. Let me introduce you to the unknown God. And that's what Paul begins to speak about in the remainder of the passage. The people of Athens established this altar of the unknown God. Really, it was so they could cover all their bases. They had the statues and, and the, the temples and the buildings established for all the known deities. And then they established this one just said, to the unknown. Because they didn't want to miss out on a blessing. They didn't want to receive a potential curse. And they didn't want to leave anybody out. Wasn't that nice of them? So they just go to the altar of the unknown God. And Paul goes, let me tell you about him because I know him personally. I have met him and he's changed my life. And then he begins and you see in verse 24, the God, we'll go back just so you see it clearly, to an unknown God, that's the, the inscription that was inscribed, therefore what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and he does not live in shrines made by hand. Notice that it says the God, circle that, pay attention to that. The God, not a God, not a deity, not a person of worship. It is the God, the only one that is worshiped. And when you see the word the, establishing him as unique and set apart, Paul is going to describe to us here that he is the creator of the world. You remember back to Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, who? God created heavens and earth. I've grown up here and my dad say Genesis 1.1 God created the heavens and the earth and he stepped out into the darkness one morning and created the heavens and the earth before breakfast. <laughs> Just spoke it into existence. That's the God. That's who they think is unknown, who Paul says is very much known. It's the God who's creator of heaven and earth. And man is not the creation, or I'll rephrase it, man is the creation of God. God is not the creation of man. Do you get that? So we can't establish all of our little deities and all of our little idols. 
God is the creator and he's also the originator of life. You ask me if I'm pro-life, I am absolutely pro-life because God originated it. God speaks it into existence. And you understand that God is superior to all lifeless idols. The one who was and is and evermore shall be. And then when you see the God, it's establishing him as the owner. If he created it, if he spoke it into existence, if he gives life, if he gives breath, if he marks our days on the calendar, then God is the owner, the Lord of all of heaven and earth. Not just the creator, but the sustainer. Do you understand that? Every star in heaven, every breath you breathe is sustained by thee. Almighty God. I think Paul's just getting cranked up, don't you? Standing in this arena of 500 people. And he goes, God is over all because he owns it all. And God is generous to us because he's given us life and he's given us breath. How often do you just stop in the day and you pause and you give thanks to God? You actually give praise to God in heaven for the breath that is in your lungs. For the blood that courses your veins that gives you life. For a salvation that he alone provided. When's the last time you just paused and given thanks for the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Here's what I want you to understand about God's generosity this morning. God's generosity, it surrounds us and it sustains us. Let me just encourage you, take a look around when you get out of this building today, when you're driving home, take a look around and see all that God has given, what he has surrounded you with in his goodness and greatness. We were talking this morning that the leaves have been beautiful this fall, haven't they? I didn't know if that was just a West Virginia thing or if this is kind of unique because we haven't had these kind of fall experiences down in Virginia the last couple years. This has been absolutely beautiful. And as I come out of my neighborhood, I sit up kind of up on a hill and I can look down through the valley and it's just been ablaze with color. And I've been determined this fall, I ask the Lord not to let me leave my neighborhood that I don't pause at that stop sign and give thanks for his creation the way he has surrounded us with his glory. Have you paused to do that today? How many of you, I'm going to put you on the spot. Can I, I'm just going to do it. I'm not even going to ask. How many of you know today that you're saved? You know it? When's the last time you just really became undone before the Lord? Just giving thanks for his generosity of saving you and I. Because you realize he didn't have to. He didn't have to, but he chose to. Let me give you a second principle here that may surprise some of us that we learn out of this passage of Scripture. Not only it surrounds us and sustains us, but God is self-sufficient and doesn't need a thing from you and I. You go, well, he doesn't need anything from us. Why do you always talk about giving and serving and obedience 
Well, take a look at what the last part of chapter, verse 24 and verse 25 says. It says this God, this unknown God, he does not live, this God that we, live, we worship, he does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath. And what's the last phrase? And, oh, that was weak. And, say it again, and, God, the God you and I worship, sovereign God, ruler of heaven and earth, has no need. There's nothing he needs. He realizes that if he needed something, he would be less than sufficient. And scripture tells us he's all sufficient, that he's without need of anything. So he doesn't need a temple. Paul is saying, can't you just see him preaching in Athens? He doesn't need these temples. He doesn't need these shrines. He doesn't need these buildings. He doesn't need these idols. And you go, well, does God need our love and does God need our service? Does, does God need our worship? And I can tell you this morning, according to this passage of scripture, God enjoys our love and he enjoys our service and he enjoys our obedience and he enjoys our faithfulness, but he doesn't need it. He enjoys it but he doesn't need it because he doesn't need the offerings of you and I to make him better. He's already complete. Does that make sense to you today? Yes. I think that's a theological truth that we miss sometimes. Oh, that if I give a little bit, if I serve a little bit, if I, if I share a little bit, then I'm going to complete. You're not going to complete anything. Because God is already self-sufficient and there's nothing in him that lacks and there's nothing that we can give that would complete. I don't know about you, but that helps me a great deal when I understand the generosity of God. He gives out of his great wealth, out of his great sufficiency because he needs nothing. Now, I'm gonna come back and unpack that a little bit further in just a minute, so don't, don't lose me. Let me give you this third principle we see today. He surrounds and sustains us. He's sufficient, self-sufficient, needs nothing. Number three, God is seeking people who will reflect and model his generosity. God is seeking out people like you and I who will reflect who he is, his generous character, and who will reflect that to the people around us. If you go to verse 27, you'll find that Paul's going of speaking of God said he did this so that he might, that we might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he's not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. Folks, let me just say it again to us this morning. If or when you and I are generous it's because he was generous first. If you and I are able to be generous in any form or fashion, it's because he was generous first. Don't get it out of order. Don't get yourself ahead of the generosity of God. But God's generosity isn't just without purpose. Matter of fact, it's with great purpose. The generosity of God to you and I is so that we might know him that we can worship him, that we can respond to him. And Paul is now standing in this 
pagan pantheon and, and he's standing all the, in, front of, in front of all these philosophers and he paints the picture of a God who is self-sufficient, who needs nothing, who is generous and the owner and the Lord of all and says, this is the God that wants to know you and wants you to know him. What an amazing, an amazing God. Some of you are going, now, wait a minute, preacher. You're saying God owns everything and God provides everything and everything I have comes from God, but I'm the one that's worked. I'm the one that's busted it out there for 40, 50, 60 hours a week. I'm the one that's maintained a budget. I'm the one that's sacrificed. I'm the one that has provided for my family. And that may all very well be true, but can I point you back to a, a passage of Scripture here? At the end of verse 25, it says, Since it's he himself who gives everyone life and breath and all things. So just how much work did you do without life and breath? Am I right? What, what did you do without the life and the breath that God gave you? Therefore, everything that you and I think we have accumulated and think that we own really comes from God first anyway, doesn't it? And he not only gives you life and breath, he gives you all things. I've put several passages of scripture on your handout. I want to read them to you. Follow along with me. The psalmist said in chapter 89, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and everything in it are yours and you founded them. He goes on in chapter 50, he goes, I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. And if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and everything in it is mine. Did you catch that? Why, if God was hungry, would he not tell us? Because he needs nothing from us. He's self-sufficient. Job says, who comforted me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven belongs to me. And Moses records in Deuteronomy in chapter 8, you may say to yourself, my power and mine own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember, Oh, circle that. But remember, you have it highlighted. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. Why? Why does he give us this strength and breath and life in order, circle, in order to confirm his covenants that he swore to your ancestors as it is today? Do we agree in the room today that everything we have comes from the Lord? All good gifts come from the Father. Can we not today just stop and consider God's extravagant generosity against the selfishness of humanity that we see on display? How generous is God in comparison to the selfishness of man where there's no comparison, isn't it? So scripture tells us that all things are from God and watch this, all things are for God. Do you hear that? Everything we have is from God and everything we have is for God. So God really only receives, think about this, God only receives what he has already given. Because without God giving, we have nothing to return. 
So you're praying, which you should do, and you're giving, which you should do, and serving. These are all a generous response to the love of God, the provision of God, and the generosity of God. So let me, let me encourage you. When you pause today, when you go through your week and you're getting ready to serve, when you're getting ready to come before the Lord in prayer, when you're getting ready to open this book in Bible study, when you're getting ready to do a kind deed to somebody, can I just encourage you to stop and recognize this is all in response to what he has given. Not what you need and not what you can provide to him. It's just simply an honest response to what God has given. And here's the beauty of it. When you and I give to God, he's not the beneficiary. We are. How good is that? When we give, when we sacrifice, when we serve, it's not him that's getting the benefit of it. It's you and I. Because when we start to grow in our generosity and in our gratitude, we will grow in our spiritual habits. Watch that. If you want to increase your generosity and your gratitude towards the Heavenly Father, then you will automatically grow, begin to grow in spiritual habits of Bible reading and prayer and giving and serving, which will take you to maturing in your walk with Christ you'll start to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. And here's the beauty of that. When you and I are forming spiritual habits and being changed into the image of Christ, we start to get free from materialism, which means we're holding on to things less here, more focused on the internal than the temporal. And when you and I get freed up of materialism, we start to get overwhelmed with peace and with joy, because now we're not trying to keep up. And not, we're, not, we're not feeling a burden of having to present ourselves as something we're not. And when you are, listen to me, when you and I overflow with joy and peace out of a walk with the Lord, out of a transformation of Christ within us, you and I will seek gospel opportunities and will be like Paul walking through Athens and going, I see your lostness and I see what you're searching for, can I introduce you to the known God, the known God? So where are you today in your generosity with God? Tight-fisted, reluctant, pushing back? Where are you in your growth with God? Are you stagnant? Are you idle? Are you pressing in? And I'll give you these four things very quickly today that I, I think help us. Before I can give anybody the four steps of growing in your generosity, the obvious and the most critical step of anyone is accepting Christ as your Savior. We won't get anything right until we get Jesus right. We won't enjoy growth and gratitude and generosity in any way if it's not Christ who's pouring within us. You go, I'm not sure I understand this. The scripture's pretty clear. We're learning it in our Romans Bible study. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Guess who all includes? You and I. That's us. 
which means all of our righteous deeds and all of our kind acts and all of our gifts of service all fall short of the glory of God. And God goes, you'll never be able to bridge the gap. So he sent his son. Isn't that what John 3.16 tells us? For God so loved the world that he did what? Gave. Generosity that he gave. Why? So we could have eternal life. It all starts with salvation. And I don't know where you are today. I don't know who you are today. But I know this. There's a good chance in the 200 people that's in this room this morning that someone here has never accepted Christ as your Savior. That someone here has never stepped across the line and go, I surrender. I'll receive the free gift that I cannot earn and I cannot buy. And I will accept Christ as my Savior today. Some of you are in the room going, I know what's coming next. He's going to ask us to bow our head and close our eyes. Watch this. No, I'm not. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, but you would like to, you'd like to know more about it. Anybody? In front of everybody, I see that. Anybody else? Then do it today. Make the decision today. How do I do that? It's a simple prayer, isn't it? Lord, I'm a sinner and you're a savior. I can't get to heaven on my own and I need your divine work in my life. So I trust what you've done and not what I can do. And the Bible says when you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart these things, you will be saved. If you've made that decision this morning, if you want to talk about that decision, myself and others will be here afterwards. Let me move on as we wrap this thing up. For those of us that have walked with the Lord and, and are pursuing a relationship with Him, when it comes to generosity, I'm going to encourage you to do four things. One, shift your view. Shift your view. Just start to make this statement. God, you own everything and I own nothing. That's a hard one to, to say, isn't it? But get it right. God, you own everything and I own nothing. What you're really saying is, God, you have full authority over all my stuff. You know, we just moved here recently. I don't know if you all knew that or not. And uh, it, it took a lot to move all of Sue's stuff. A little bit of mine, a little bit of mine. You know what Sue and I learned as we were packing up? And we did this just seven years prior to that. Our stuff has stuff. If you've lived in your house more than five years, God bless you when you get ready to move. It's like rabbits, it multiplies. You know what I realize is the reason why we have so much stuff is because we think we own it. Because we think it's ours. Shift your view. It's not my stuff, it's his stuff. And he gets to use his stuff for his glory. Number two, align your heart. You're going to shift your view and you're going to align your heart. Where you're simply going to say, I'm going to seek God's vision 
and obediently manage all that he has given me. So if he's given you life and breath and all things, then you're just going to align your heart and go, Lord, what is it you want to do with your stuff in my life? Do you hear that? What do you want to do with your stuff in my life? And make it a primary objective to align your heart to his so that God gets the most use of his resources in your life. Number three, learn how to grow in gratitude. Here's the truth. If you will grow in gratefulness and gratitude, you will become more generous. They go hand in hand. If you are struggling with generosity, it's because you're struggling with gratefulness. So put these two together and go, Lord, I'm going to, to just stop and I'm going to consider all that you have given me and I'm going to give thanks for it. I'm just going to say thank you on a daily basis. You'll have a heart full of worship and a life full of gratitude. And here's the last one. Move from leftovers to first fruits. How many of you grew up eating leftovers? Anybody? Anybody eat leftovers? Still do. I, uh, for whatever reason, growing up, my mom didn't save leftovers. Whatever was finished at the table, she got rid of. Um, so I wasn't a big leftover person until I got married. And then when we realized we didn't have a month money left over to buy new stuff, new food, we had to eat the leftover food. And I've become to love leftovers. And leftovers are great when it comes to managing our grocery bills sometimes, isn't it? But leftovers are horrible when it comes to your gratitude towards God. He gives life and breath and all things. Is that what the scripture said? Then he gets the first fruits, not the last fruits. We're going to unpack that further in the week, but you all very much know what I'm talking about. But give him your first praise. Give him your best service. Give him your first act of obedience. And yes, give to him financially first as well. And enjoy the generosity of God. How about that? Did you survive a message on generosity? Okay. I hope you didn't just survive it. I hope you will take it home and go, Lord, where do I need to have some mid-course corrections? What do I need to change and evaluate? I don't normally do this, but Michael, can I throw you all a real curveball? You remember these days, don't you? When I used to change it at the last minute. Can we do goodness of God again? Since you know it. Can we go out of here singing the goodness of God today? Now here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to stand there and sing it like he's not really good. I want you to sing it like you know he is. I want you to sing it like he's given you life and breath and all things. Therefore, we give him worship and praise today. Let's stand and sing.